Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts. Especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributor. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Um, so I just wanted to thank everyone for having me out here. This is actually a really nice opportunity to get a chance to talk about um, some new research that I've been exploring. Um, but before I do, so every talk that I give, I always like to acknowledge that we are currently standing on stolen land, specifically land that previously belonged to the Monomah tribe. Um, although recently I've been finding that statement a little bit problematic, but more on that in a second. Um, I was asked to uh, quote some scripture before I gave my talk. Um, and actually, I was raised Jehovah's Witness, so I was quite familiar with the Bible and this passage that I uh, am currently going to read. And I was actually fascinated that I was able to find it again That's kind of through the magic of Google. Um, so this comes from uh, Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through uh, 14. And it reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death came, excuse me, I just hold it, uh, death, death, death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is, is not reckoned when there is no law. Uh, yet death exercised dominion from, Moses, from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of one who was to come. Um, and I, I chose that particular uh, passage of scripture because I think that it really does represent our current situation as far as issues concerning food justice, but more generally uh, inequality. If we look around in Portland, I think some of the broader concerns that a lot of folks have right now is, you know, how are we going to address escalating environmental concerns, but also how do we address that in a way that doesn't continue to dispossess land from people who lived here previously? And sort of the most recent rendition of that obviously being gentrification. People have been dispossessed that way. And when I think about original sin, and specifically the passage that I read, I always think that our existence here and our original sin in many ways is uh, the dispossession of land, specifically land that once belonged to uh, the Manoma tribe. But the reason I have sort of a problem when I said earlier with this idea of stolen land is that it sort of understands and frames that narrative from the perspective of settler colonialism, which is this idea that land is private and that it belongs to someone. Right? We didn't steal land. I think really what we did is we expropriated land, and that's a much more, uh, I think that's a better way to frame the situation that we currently face. Right? This land didn't belong to anyone at that time. We have a narrative in which we think about land as something that is private that can be owned. And so not only did we expropriate in the sense, and what I should say, what I mean by expropriation, oftentimes this uses a legal term, right? This idea of dispossessing something, we use it through eminent domain. But in this particular context, when I say expropriation, I'm really talking about the dispossession, not just of uh, any type of property or land, but also intellectual rights for the greater good of a different civilization. And so when I talk about expropriation in particular of land, uh, of the uh, colonialists when they came to the Americas, it wasn't just the land that was dispossessed, but it was also the knowledge that belonged to that land. And I always think of that as being our original sin. And one of the mechanisms that we did that through was not just by dispossessing spaces, but we also dispossessed 
uh, individuals in order to work on that land. And so specifically what I'm uh, referring to is the slaves that are brought here uh, during the early uh, settler colonial era. And we tend to have an American-centric narrative when we talk about slavery. And so we think about you know, slaves in uh, Virginia for tobacco or slaves all throughout the South that um, were actually uh, used for uh, cotton. But only about 10% of all slaves during the Atlantic slave trade actually came to the United States colonies. And 90%, the vast majority of them, went to the West Indies. And that's actually the slavery um, I wanted to sort of discuss to some degree. Um, and that's because um, early on, a lot of uh, the development of the Americas, specifically the United States and the West Indies, was actually through sugar cultivation. Um, and a lot of slaves uh, that were brought over to the Americas were used to um, farm sugar on sugar plantations. And it was a very different situation as far as slavery is concerned uh, than what we think traditionally in the United States uh, from cotton or from um, tobacco. Specifically, it was a much more brutal endeavor uh, the plant, cotton, excuse me, uh, sugar plantations actually take a large amount of labor, and that's actually why slave labor becomes such, became such a relevant uh, tool used by uh, settler colonialists uh, during that era. And so um, a lot of the plantationers at that time, people don't realize, we think about them as being the problem, but they're actually in debt. And most of that debt lied in the hands of uh, various British merchants who were selling those slaves. Um, and all this becomes relevant as far as uh, our relationships to food justice, um, is because that over time, uh, eventually the narratives around slavery, sh slavery shifted. And the story that we're often told, and this is something that actually is related to lots of Quakers in the United States at this time, but also Quakers in Britain, was that uh, we eventually um, started to understand the sins of slavery, and we changed our minds about how we treat individuals. Um, and we started to uh, reevaluate re how we were expropriating people through land. And one way that we were doing that was by relegating both native peoples and black individuals and understanding them through the context of nature, right? Being lesser than human, dehumanizing the entire group. And then we finally came to a point where we could look at them very differently um, and see them as human beings and so no longer dispossess these individuals. Um, but actually, that's not so much the narrative, and there's been some scholars that have uh, noted that what actually happened is that slavery became less profitable uh, in the West Indies, and that's because uh, the relationship to land had changed. Uh, sugar cultivation was having a diminishing return, mostly because uh, the yields were going down, because the soil fertility was reducing, because they were not handling the, handling the land properly. And so the, slavery, the slave industry uh, within the West Indies became a fairly volatile market, because you had huge amounts of debt that was being held by plantation owners that could no longer pay those debts. Um, and what's fascinating about that is this, this sort of abolish, abolition of slavery in Great Britain kind of coincided with uh, the American Revolution, mostly because we sort of, once again, in our American-centric narrative, like to think of us as the crown jewel of the British Empire, and we rebelled. That's actually not the case. We were sort of a side colony, and the significance of the, uh, the United States colonies at that time was that we provided textiles and food and resources for the West Indies. So basically, we were there to make sure they can focus on producing sugar, which is where all the money came from, and that was our relevance. And Britain didn't really care to keep the United States anymore because they knew the sugar industry was declining. And that's actually what really happened. Um, and eventually, after slavery was abolished, there was conversations over how do we deal with or reconcile with this reality of slavery. And it really does coincide with some conversations we have today concerning reparations. Um, and there actually were reparations paid out uh, by Great Britain uh, following the abolition of slavery. But it wasn't paid out to the slaves themselves. And in fact, the reparations that were paid out were paid out to uh, the plantation owners that were in massive amounts of debt. And that was what Parliament decided was the best way to address issues concerning slavery. Um, what's interesting about that is, as I mentioned earlier, most of those colonists, uh, most of those plantation owners were in debt to British merchants. 
And so that money went to the West Indies for a quick second, and then it was simply, simply just you know, put back into the hands of those merchants because it was used to pay off that debt. And that actually led to a whole transformation of Britain at the time and led to sort of the industrial era. All that money was then subsequently used to create an industrial society like we'd never seen before. Um, and I, I bring all of this up and I say this, and why I think it's related to food justice is the question I think we all really need to sort of concern ourselves with is how much are we really willing to give up? And I think that that is really where I want to push the narrative uh, as opposed to thinking about how do we deal with our uh, current issues by adding on to things and taking an additive approach, thinking about how our very existence is some form of sin and meaning that we have to give something up in order to really create justice. And what, what, do we, what are we willing to actually give up when it comes to issues of justice. Uh, when I look around, and I, particularly in Portland, when I see things like community gardens, or people participating in community-supported agricultural programs, it's a way of addressing an individual relationship with land, which can be important, but once again, that's fairly additive in the sense that it doesn't acknowledge that, it just sees the issue as a one-dimensional problem of how an individual relates, relates to the environment, but noting that one's access to things like community gardens or CSAs uh, is about space, and it's about having access to space through dispossession. And the real narrative is how do we see those things as intertwined? Meaning that how does one's access to be able to actually reduce the impact they have on the environment, how is that tied to their ability to occupy specific spaces? Um, and I know that it's sort of easy to look beyond that because in Oregon, you know, we didn't necessarily have slaves, but we all benefited, meaning we all have this land, not only benefited from the existence of slavery, but also the dispossession of land from uh, native peoples. And we continue to benefit from that relationship today in the sense that we often have never been able to address this problem because we've only come at it from one perspective. And the last thing I'll say on this um, is when we talk about uh, reparations, we should really be concerned about how we even address racial inequality in the context of uh, food insecurity today. Because there are talks about uh, one of the mechanisms to address uh, gentrification is to repay people who were, whose land was dispossessed and then subsequently used to create uh, sort of uh, more just organizations around food. Um, but the problem with that is, similar to the um, plantation owners in the West Indies, is that most individuals who are currently being dispossessed are indebted to people who are benefiting from their disparity currently. And so I always ask the question of where do you think that money is going to go? Where do you think the first thing someone who's been dispossessed from their space is going to, where are they going to put that money at the beginning, right? Are they going to simply move on and go somewhere else or they're going to get out of debt? move away from living next to a toxic waste site, and thinking about who benefits from them actually being in those spaces in the first place. And that's all of us, right? Those of us who don't have to be there. We benefit but from having other people be relegated to these spaces. And so the conversation isn't as simple as just saying, give more to other people. I think the conversation really does need to be, we need to have less in order to give more to others. So I'll just end it with that, so thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that so many of you are finding it to be helpful and as a way to stay connected with what's going on with us here at West Hills Friends. If you'd like to stay connected with us in other ways, we have a couple options for you. You can check out our website. It's westhillsfriends.org. There you'll find some more information about who we are as a community. You can also follow us on Facebook. We have a Facebook account by just searching for West Hills Friends. You can also follow us on Instagram. We have a Instagram account with the name West Hills Friends. So we hope that you'll get connected with us in other ways. And again, thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. <laughs>